Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover, the co-host of the show, who is also the CEO of Fieldcraft LLC. And today we have an interesting episode for you guys. Uh, we have on soon-to-be-retired Master Sergeant Kevin T. And Kevin spent 22 years in Special Forces in various units and positions, including a breacher, sniper, team sergeant, and is currently working with Team Fieldcraft in Survival Preparedness Consulting, and he just left as an instructor on a West Coast ROTC. So I'm going to hand it over to Mike, as uh, Kevin is a, a longtime friend of Mike, and uh, they'll, they'll get into more details. Thanks, John. Hey, it's Mike from Fieldcraft. Hey, guys, I got uh, Kevin T. He's a good buddy of mine. Uh, me and Kevin actually went to Ranger School like 16, 17 years ago, and that was our first interaction. I was a, a big PFC, um, E3, holding it down and. uh Kevin was a uh, special forces staff sergeant, I think, at the time. So he's old. So, uh, but I got Kevin on on the line, and uh, Kevin actually is soon to be retired. He's going to retire here shortly. That's why we're not giving out all his information. But Kevin is consulting with us with Team Fieldcraft, and uh, we're working on projects. One project that we just uh, wrapped up, and is, we'll talk about later in the episode. But Kevin's here to offer some perspective on special forces and kind of his career as 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 he went through SF and give some information and insight on kind of like his perspective on mindset. Me and Kevin have similar perspectives on mindset, but he's got a, a take on it that that I really never thought about that might help out the listeners, especially in preparation for special forces training or special operations training. So we'll get into that. And also we have uh, some information to put you put put out about Team Philcraft's new venture with our DVD series, and we'll get into that as well. But uh, Kevin, uh, you on the line? Yep. How's it going, Mike? Good, man. Good to have you back in the house. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's funny because I haven't seen – I've been with uh, – I've known Kevin for 16, 17 years, almost two decades, and we've we've always ran into each other in SF. Uh, we were on the same team together, the same units together uh, at, at the same time at different times, and we've always bounced around. And the one of the uh, times after Ranger School that I saw him was when I was going through the Special Forces qualification course, and he was actually my uh, language school uh, NCIC, you know, the non-commissioned officer in charge of the, the program. And uh, he took us on an epic. I remember this because he took us on this epic run. I, I, can I even talk about? This? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we we went on debtor retired by now from then. <laughs> we were in formation and running down Ardennes, which is for people who don't know. And the 82nd Airborne Division in Fort Bragg in general shuts down Ardennes Road, which is a you know probably a mile mile plus, a couple miles of straight up just normal road with intersections and everything, and they close it down so the big army can run down in formations down this road. And Kevin was uh, he was doing what would we call it? Hate run or something like that. <laughs> we call it we call it like the hate run. Yeah. And what it was, it was kind of like our graduating run. Um, down our dens in formation, which is not typical of special forces. So when we do it, we kind of like to make it unconventional, which Kevin definitely <laughs> did. So Kevin put a boombox in like a rucksack. And it was a, a psyops loudspeaker. Backpack, oh, actually, one of their man portable ones. <laughs> yeah, no. Just, so a man portable psychological operations microphone or and or a speakerphone, 
and he had music playing, which was like it was like death metal, and it was death metal, a little Dead Kennedys, Dropkick Murphys, yeah, a couple Hakas thrown in there, yeah, so, so, some ap- epic rock and roll and uh, death metal, and we ran down in formation. Imagine it was like 150 students in Ranger panties and brown T-shirts, so everybody knew we were like special forces candidates, and then our instructor, who everybody knew who he was, the instructor, but he had this. Uh, Pitbull. This this backpack <laughs> oh, that too. with the with the the rucksack with the speakers playing loud music and he had his pit bull with him um, and he was running with his pit bull and every I think everybody who was probably in O three and above every captain and above was trying to run us down every first sergeant sergeant major was like yelling at us and screaming at us <laughs> and Kevin's dog here was like in the intersection like taking a shit in the middle of our bins <laughs> while like <laughs> big armies running in formation so. That's the last uh, major interaction that I had with him as a student. And then, again, ran into Kevin. We were snipers together on the same t- same team in the SIF. Um, we were at USASOC together. And then uh, um, we were in third. We grew up in third group together. So, Kevin, it, you've had a very long career. You're really old. <laughs> and uh, um, My Twilight fan, Team Edward all the way. <laughs> he's, so. he's Team Edward. <laughs> Um, but, but Kevin has a, a really cool career and a unique perspective being in so many positions. Um, so Kevin, how, how did you start out in the army, man? And, and what was your, what was your MOS or what was your job title before you even went SF? No, uh, originally I was a, a combat engineer at 12 Bravo. So I, um, I was extremely naive to the, the entry system, you know, coming into the, the military, into the army and, you know, I was under the, uh, the misconception that everyone was John Rambo. So I went to the recruiter asking to be a ranger and somehow I ended up, um, a combat engineer. So the only benefit to that was, you know, um, airborne school was part of the contract. And from there I went on to, uh, the 27th engineer battalion at Fort Bragg. So, you know, Kevin was a combat engineer and for, for the listeners who don't know, special forces is made up of, you know, you have that 18 X-ray program where guys come off the streets, but generally the, the the major population of special forces comes from different jobs outside of the infantry, outside of the 18 X-ray program, which brings perspective and also uh, better skill sets to the specific MOSs and job specialties in special forces. So before Kevin was uh, a special forces engineer. He was a combat engineer, an airborne ranger qualified or no, an airborne qualified um, combat engineer, which also, you know, when he got to this team, made him a huge asset. And then what, Kevin, after or when you went and assessed for selection, how long had you been in the regular army? I I, I honestly, it was the minimum requirements necessary at the time. Was Uh, that two years? Well, it took me a little bit longer. Um, It was based on rank. You had to be E4. And uh, I was the PFC of the Army for a little bit. So I, I got busted down in rank uh, once or twice my first year in the Army. So uh, you too can recover. Um, but anyways, I, I was what you might call a leadership challenge. Um, and I learned some hard lessons early on, but it kind of um, got me pointed in a better direction than where I you know, initially started out from. Had some uh, really solid leaders um, you know, that really made a, an impact not only on my career but on my life. And, um, you know, inspired me to kind of, again, not to, to be like them or be better than them, but, um, you know, the, the attributes, you know, I just wanted to, to emulate what they were doing and, and continue to grow that. 
Um, and that's what pushed me towards uh, Special Forces. You know, I, I wanted a challenge in my life more so than I wanted a Green Beret. Um, and, you know, for me, it ended up being successful. I had uh, more of the mindset um, and the f- physical prowess at the time. You know, I was I was fit and ready and I was prepared. But yet to the guys to my left and right, um, I was average. You know, those guys were savages in my mind. And uh, just to be around them was, was a pretty amazing experience. Um, and I kind of got focused in on that, looking at SFAS as more of a competition, um, you know, than, than a career choice, I think. How old were you when you went to selection SFAS? Uh, 22 years old. So young, definitely yep, young. Definitely. Um, so when you went to selection and then you went to the Q course, did you choose your MOS, your job specialty as an engineer? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, actually, you know, so uh, I joke around about it. But again, because of the leadership I had, I knew more. Um, about demolitions as a 12 Bravo than I did in the Q course. Um, again, it, a- afterwards was a different story. The exposure to the, the, the stuff we saw on the team it was a different world. But as far as like, you know, explosive theory and application, uh, we were definitely challenged by leadership. And, and we were, you know, we, I'm saying my entire squad uh, were switched on. So before you went into Special Forces, you didn't, did you not have an interest in being an engineer? You wanted to be like a Bravo? No, or? yeah, ex- exactly. I'm sorry. I kind of went off on a tangent there. But yeah, I was, you know, the sexy aspect of it, the guy with the gun, you know, the nice jawline. You mean what I was? I exactly. was 18 Bravo. I wanted that. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be an 18 Bravo with Spanish and just get to a team type thing, you know. Um, but, you know, but even then, I think um, when I was going through the Q course, it might have changed around that time. I, I don't remember, but uh, you would end up. If you were an 18 Delta, you were nationally uh, credentialed uh, paramedic. So I was kind of looking at the transferability of military skills um, towards the private sector even back then. Because, um, again, you know, for me, it wasn't a career. It was a childhood dream kind of coming to fruition slowly. But I was there for, for the personal challenge that it offered. Where were you when uh, 9-11 happened? I was in my team room. Uh, we just finished a long run. Um, they were remember it second by second, um, seeing the first tower go down, kind of sitting there in complete shock and then, you know, watching live the second one fly into it. But we just came back from, um, you know, five mile loop on the fire breaks behind the company area. And, and, uh, like literally just, you know, no one even hit the, the showers yet and still, uh, drinking coffee, bullshitting, watching the news. So, that, so third group for, for, you know, everybody who doesn't know the history the triple nickel and some special forces teams out of fifth group actually led uh, during the invasion after 9-11. So we're talking October, November of not of 2001. And uh, there was also teams from third special forces group as well as some teams from uh, 20th group. I know what, when did you first deploy to Afghanistan? Cause I know you were, you were in the earlier. Oh, it was earlier. We were kind of like a, um, a 1.5, you know, not quite OEF2 yet, but yeah. we, we weren't there for the invasion, nor were we there for, you know, Anaconda, which were the two big operations at the time, obviously. Um, you know, we had some other ones that were going on through, you know, the region that we were located that kept us busy. But to be honest with you, most of the fighting was over by then. Um, they were bombed back into the caves they came from. And there, it was a relatively semi-permissive environment for a long time. So when you, uh, so yeah, you deploy, I remember seeing the pictures. I know for guys 
and guys who don't know, uh, Kevin just started a uh, social media page that's you know linked to his, uh, you know his uh, mission sets with Philcraft, Team Philcraft, but also with his business that he's that he's going to be running here shortly, uh, called GBNT Shelters. And if you look at those old pictures on uh, Kevin's Instagram, I mean that's those pictures are like old school. I mean, that's before anything was kind of like the term tactical. I mean, you guys were wearing like web gear and, and you had all the old equipment that, that, you know, by the, that the end of, uh, the, the time that we were fighting the war recently and the end of my career where the kit has completely changed. Have you seen, you know, from your time in the beginning, uh, with third group or in the early days to, to now, how far we've evolved as as special forces operators? No, it, it really has. It, it's advanced overnight. It seems um, all the processes were in place. The technology was available. You know, the ju- justification was there. So, you know, the evolution of the modern special forces um, soldier was, you know, was was within a short period of time. So you you were a. Uh Team Sergeant, right? Correct. And uh, third Special Forces Group. And you were a Team Sergeant, well, first battalion? Uh, second battalion. Second battalion, way off. Yeah, yep. tonight. The one next to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so me and Kevin were snipers on the same detachment. Uh, and that was, what, 2009 ish? Yeah, 2008, 2009. I think. 2008, 2009. Actually, on uh, the Instagram. I think we both posted the helicopter it. crash. The helicopter crash, but that was uh, 08. Uh, it was Iraq 08. October. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but Kevin was actually in that helicopter crash, and we were in the SIF at the time. And Kevin, or I think we were we were both snipers on the same team, and you guys were doing a an op. And I, I was on the the HLZ and seeing you guys off. Yeah. And I remember joking around. We we all had a weird vibe that night, but. I remember just making a joke and, you know, typical, you know, soft fashion, just, just shooting the shit and just talking crap on the, on the HLZ before they took off. And I remember joking like, Hey, don't frap in or don't crash. And literally, I think 10 minutes later, I was like heading to QRF and my Sergeant Major was telling me to get everybody together. And we had a launch to go QRF these guys because they just got a helicopter crash. So they had two helicopters. They were a Navy, Navy C sixties, yeah, right? Yeah. So they're like nav socks, um, MH uh, sixties, which is their version of it. It's a different uh, kind right. of. Well, they, their their setup saved our lives, you know, hands down. That's yeah, what, yeah. That's what kept us all alive. And yeah, their door, their door gunner, their door gunner kind of kept us in. Where typically we would we would have had our, our feet hanging off the door, ready to kind it was of disembark. Yeah. Yeah. So they had basically two helicopters. Uh, infill you got they infilled into a fob it was i can't remember the fob um but anyways the second helicopter popped a power line right right so they thought we were taking incoming and and you felt it just the uh you know you the noise how intense it was i can still remember that but you got heavy on the stick and literally nosed us down into the lead helicopter's uh tail rotor which dislodged it and um you know severed one of the team members in half and and caused a Quite a bit of, of destruction around it. Yeah, we lost that that night. We lost one of the Iraqi counterterrorism force guys, and I think everybody was wounded except for uh, one of our teammates who got slapped on the butt. I know he one of the propeller blades broke off, and he was next to this one of the snipers that we got right. cut in half. But that same propeller 
he theorizes that uh, the piece that hit him hit him flat on his butt because he, he got like swatted wow. on the on the ass basically by by this by maybe the same set of pieces from the same rotor that ripped another dude in half. So it ripped one guy in half because it hit him sideways and it smacked our teammate on the ass basically and knocked him over and he had some bruises. But uh, I think everybody took shrapnel or, or was a, ma- a major yeah, we were, injury. We were covered in blood and diesel pretty yeah. much just crawling out of there. I remember you had a, uh, I've never seen it before, uh, a dent in your Mitch helmet yeah. that, you know, you like you can't, I mean, it's hard to, when you shoot Kevlar for it to, to, to make it imperfect, but you had a nice dent on your nugget right where your head hit the side of the helicopter yeah. and crashed. So definitely um, lucky there. Anyways, um, I just went off on a tangent, but <laughs> going back to your career, right? Um, t- tell us about your team start time. How, how was that experience for you? Uh, and and I know you took your guys to Afghanistan a couple times. Without getting too much detail, but just as an experience overall, what, how was it? Uh, being a team star, I know it was it was awesome for me. Yeah, it was. It was definitely the um, the pinnacle of my career, and and for me, a very positive way to to, to leave the force. Um, I think for every special forces soldier, um, it's it's what we all want to grow up to be, and we want to have that opportunity. Um, and for me, the guys, the families, um, you know, their wives or children, it, it was an amazing opportunity to kind of give back, um, and it was an appropriate time in my career to where. You know, I wasn't chasing down the next school. I wasn't trying to um, to better myself, focusing on not necessarily my career, but you know, my personal enrichment. Um, I was I was focused on giving all that knowledge back to the guys and, and pushing them to you know higher higher levels of of um, uh, performance. Excuse me. Okay, so you, you talk about mindset and i know me and you had this discussion offline and i think it's pretty important and one of it's one of many reasons that kevin's working with phil craft because he has a some cool perspective and psychology on on how he's led his men in combat but also how he looks at my overall mindset which we call a warrior mindset and how he's applied it to his troops but also how he's applied it in his own life through his own careers and this morning we had discussed it a little bit but can you give us a like a snapshot on your perspective on mindset and kind of you know how did you develop that that mindset that that we talk about now and and that we plan to impart onto people in the future? No, um, I, I think for me it was it was a, a realistic approach to the way I live my life. Um, you know, I can remember being the, that that young private on Fort Bragg, seeing a Green Beret for the first time and just kind of being starstruck. Um, because again, you know, we're talking about lifetime achievements, accomplishments, and here's someone that's not only been there, done that, but he's he's currently doing it. Um, with that, um, you know, again, I was very realistic in on how I established goals for myself. You know, I looked at it pragmatically to where, at the end of the day, what I wanted to achieve was to become a Green Beret. You know, I was inspired by the individual in front of me, but the challenge wasn't to be like that person it was to become like that person and to become like that person for me the person i was inspired by you know some random uh nco in the in the shopping mall um i you know that inspired me to go to selection i think i kind of stumbled on that excuse me um but the mindset was developed again in the sense 
on a realistic level to where, okay, well, maybe I can't be like that guy, but I know I can be like that guy because if he accomplished it, I know it's in within me to accomplish it. So the only thing separating me from him at that time was the, the mental fortitude. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's stoicism at its finest in the sense to where I'm, I'm realistic to the fact that I will never be the biggest, strongest or faster, fastest person in the room, but I know I'll be the last one to quit and I can control that. And it's, it's addicting. You know, it, it went from to where if I didn't suffer in the process of something, I didn't feel as if I earned it at the end of the, the, the day. Um, even to this day, if I go out for a run and I, I don't come back exhausted or or better on some levels uh, than when I left, um, I feel like I almost wasted my time. What, what is that? I mean, we talked about this, this, that this morning. It's like, uh, you know, and uh, Al Shabaro talks about it, you know, embracing the sucker, embrace the violence. Like we're embracing this pain that we want. You know, we talked about how we're in ranger school and like the best shower of your life is the shower that you take after coming out of the field ranger school and you just found out that you got to go or, you know, the best night of sleep that you ever get is the sleep that you feel like you deserve. Is that some kind of, I mean, is that a psychological process that we've trained in ourselves or is that something that, you know, we have to come with prior to going into special forces? Well, you know, for me, I know it's something that, unknowingly I developed at a young age. And, and for me, it was, you know, individual struggle struggles and, and hardships as a young kid. Um, but then, you know, flipping the switch to where, you know, this world might not have had the perfect script written for me. Um, but I remember a very specific point in my young life to where I kind of took control of that. And I can took, took control of it by letting go of the, the bullshit. You know, again, it's how much does this situation matter when 10 years from now, I won't even be thinking about it. Um, so I start, started fo- focusing on bigger and better things, which, again, kind of drove me towards uh, special forces, special operations. But it, it truly is. It's, it's not only wanting to embrace the suck, but wanting to, to be in the suck. Um, you know, you look back on your career, too. I feel, I'm sure you feel the same where some of your best memories were probably some of the, the worst times experienced. But it was, it was shared collectively. Um, and the struggle was as one uh, through a team element and and what it did for each individual and that team itself is 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 something that can truly only be experienced, I think. Yeah, it's, I remember it's at some point in my career, it almost became addicting. Like that was that was the biggest addiction. It wasn't it wasn't adrenaline. People would think for some reason, I mean, I, I guess the Hollywood is portrayed it to be, but people think that we're all adrenaline junkies and that we're just going after this adrenaline. And that's, that's what makes us who we are. But I don't even feel adrenaline. Like, I don't, I don't get, I, you know, we do free fall hay hose and it's just, you're numb to it because that's what your job is. You're, that's Absolutely. what you do. So it's almost like the addiction is our, this commonality where we selflessly want to suffer together and be part of something and kind of larger than ourselves. And it becomes these little epic memories that we kind of collect and it's 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 just odd for me to even hear myself saying it that way but it's almost like it's almost psychotic oh yeah uh, and i'm sure there's someone smarter out there that can it's like you guys are exactly what's tra- happening yeah right now, you guys but, are train wrecks but yet at the same time it is it, it's you know i think we do we did learn at a younger age because we we're 10 years younger than we are now 
but we learned at a younger age what loss truly was. And we learned that there was an appropriate time to fail and take that failure and turn it into something positive. But then there was, when it was game on, it was game on. Um, and the loss, that sting, um, is still with all of us today. But it, it, for me personally, it, it pushed me more towards the impact of the memory rather than the uh, duration of it, if that makes any sense. You know, it was, we were truly about the moment for a long period of time um, during some of the hardest times. So how do you think, I mean, you're transitioning now, right? So you're like literally where I was, I remember it's about three years ago and, I, and the transition, um, it was difficult. I mean, I, I'm still transitioning. I mean, we talk about it a lot. So what, I mean, how, how does one establish, how do, how are we uh, resilient to it? You know, how, how have special forces guys developed these special, almost, um, invincible coping mechanisms to deal with these issues or are we just lying to ourselves? Is this just something that, that everybody's going to experience and we can never get away from it? I mean, the, the, I talk about the post trauma, not being, uh, the actual experiences, but being that I'm never going to be able to experience yeah. those things again. I mean, where, where is our, our, uh, you know, psyche and all this where's our sanity and all this are you going to be able to transition and, and are you, do you have the coping me- mechanisms to do that well I, I think i do you know and, and when i say that my my coping mechanisms everything that i kind of depend on for for normalcy and consistency in my life is my family um so again kind of going back to this stoic type of of mindset to where for them, I will endure, you know, and if it needs to be silently, it will. And that's where soft runner comes into play, you know, to where from the, the therapy I get from long extended physical hardships, i.e. running, um, is such an emotional relief to me that it's, um, it's, it's truly empowering, you know, because for the first time in, in my adult life, I'm running not to prepare for a course not to prepare for a mission, not to prepare for a training mission for yourself, I'm running for myself. Mm. Um, and so having the freedom of not focusing on the upcoming missions or training calendars or ammo requests, my entire internal mechanism is now focused on me. Um, so for me, that's how I mitigate a lot of the stress and bullshit that is coming along with the transition. Because have you always done that, and th- through your soft career, have you, has that always been a part, like physical fitness? I mean, has that helped develop the mindset? Absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, it reinforces what, what's already there. Um, and again, for me, I was, and not even saying this out of humility, I was average amongst the savages, um, and that I was average on a good day. But what was amazing about that opportunity is that being very goal-oriented, I was hungry and I was fed constantly. Um, you know, Because at the end of the day, regardless, if we can get along, we can be best friends. But if you're out in front of me on a run, I'm going to try to catch you. <laughs> and it's, it's, again, it's a contagious chain reaction. The guy behind me is going to try to catch me. So when an ODA, a Special Forces Operational Detachment, goes out for physical training, a three-mile jog might turn into a 10-mile sprint. Um, and it's exhausting. Uh, so it's, it, again, I can now focus on me. Um, you know, I, I, I flip on the Pandora to whatever mood I might be in and I run as far as I need to, as fast as I need to. And whereas 
Um, you know, but it's all 100% for me. We, we, uh, talk about coping mechanisms and, you know, how people could deal with the, the issues or stressors they have in their military career. How have you dealt with, um, you know, you, you know, it's a, we talked about your career and all the things that you accomplished and it seems like it just went by in a flash. And now you're, you're working with team Phil craft. We're doing stuff together. It, does it help? I mean, I mean, does it help to have like brothers in arms and to tie into and kind of like w- w- operating together? Or do you think you could just, I mean, I mean, move in the wood line and just be good because of the family base that you have? No. Um, you know, because I, I hate to say it's smoke and mirrors. I don't want to take anything away from what I have with my family, but there are times where I, again, I, I can't be as honest with them as I can with you. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to do that and place that, I hate to say burden, but that baggage, um, on my children or on my wife with you, you and I can talk the shit. We can laugh about it, you know, drink over it, whatever, who cares? Um, but without that type of, uh, outlet, you know, who do we speak to? Because, you know, all the shit out there is all, it's all bullshit. You know, it's a, it's a, uh, a platform, you know, the, that's based on a victim's profile. And I've never considered myself a victim. Um, you know, what, what keeps me up at times is where my actions or my inactions, you know, but typically it's, it's guilt associated, not, not victim based, you know, and, it, and it's, uh, I think for a, a true gunfighter, it, it's a slap in the face and, and it makes us, uh, you know, we're too tough of a guy to be a victim. Um, and we're not going to let them know. So, you know, it, it feeds into a lot of the taboos that are out there. You know, guys aren't, you know, talking about it because they believe it's a it's a show of weakness rather than a sign of strength that they can articulate. You know, what is eating them up? Yeah, for us, I know, uh, just from experience with guys who've we've actually had have issues. You know, externally vocalized or apparent, and and you know, throughout our career, I can name a few. Well, I can think of a few that we both probably uh, experienced the same um, people that had the same issues, but it was a career ender. I mean, all these guys that I know of who went forward and said they had issues completely in special operations, it's a, it, it's a staff job. It's almost like getting charged with, um, you know, domestic violence in the state of California. You, you know, you're, you, you are done. You, you will never touch a gun again. And you know, you, when you live by the gun, and that's that's your mode of of really income and, and and your lifestyle and almost clearly defines who you are in the military. Coming out and saying anything in the realm of psychological issues or hey, I have a problem, I need help, right. is seen as a stigmatic problem. Not that um, so yeah. you, we talked about prop, nonprofits and stuff like that, and you talk, we you, you potentially. Or that's something that you're, is, you're looking at? Well, yeah, typically. So, I mean, again, it's, it's a conceptual daydream that's kind of gaining momentum right now. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, what I'm visioning is a, an off-grid, self-sustainable, small community that, you know, Green Beret veterans um, you know, negatively, neg- negatively affected or just affected in any way. Um, but it, it's going to give them uh, a, a place where they can kind of kick back and get, you know, 
get back to a pace of life that is conducive to where they want to go and where they want to be. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's just a, a rough draft at this point, but, but it's, it's happening. I don't know. Yeah, it, no, it's it's definitely happening. I know, I know. So John from Global Recon, um, you know, he he's propelled, he's helped propel myself um, too from Ronin Tactics, and just getting out there and just you know by word of mouth and by word of you know social media exposure, telling our stories, but also you know getting our businesses lined up. And there's this big network that we've kind of developed with getting businesses online and getting them. Um, out to tell their story that's relevant to their, their mission statement. Um, what, what is, what is GB&T? I know you have GB&T shelters is the name of the business, but what is GB&T? GB&T is a, a time known as a green beret nap time. Uh, consider it similar, similar to like a crew crew rest for the air force, except for us, it's not official. Um, based on our operational experience and, in knowledge, it's just the the right time uh, for the break time, um, and we can do this because we we provide a you know a structure and, and security for one another that gives us the comfort and confidence to to be able to recuperate. Um, and I think that's an extended version of it. At the end of the day, it's just again you know you know you're rolling out at night. I'm going to take a nap during the day, so it's GBNT. Um, <laughs> and here I am retired. And I, I'm looking at, you know, uh, beginning some initiatives that are based on um, simplifying a pace of life, um, providing, you know, off-grid structures that are plug and play um, with, you know, some technology in it. But yet at the end of the day, it can be dropped anywhere in the world and, and can sustain, sustain life, you know, in the sense of whether it's a, a bug out lo- location for some or you know, eventually someone buys remote property and they just want a, a safe structure to go go fall back into. Excuse me. Um, so we we grew up in shipping container and homes, homes, Legos for adults. Yeah, it's amazing. So I mean, these are like the link, the best Lincoln logs ever. I mean, you these shipping containers are self-contained, and they you know throughout the war. I don't in Vietnam. I remember seeing them. So I know it's been around for a long time, but. It's a decades, I mean, decades old. Concept. Yeah, so we yeah. we have you know hardwood floors, air conditioners, and it's as comfortable to a reality, uh, you know, in the Western world that we can get in the Middle East when you drop a shipping container in the middle of the desert <laughs> and you're operating out of it. So, so what's the what's the overall concept? Is, is your is your market focus going to be on sustainable living and and or survival preparedness or a little bit of both? I mean, well, is that, well, it's going to be a one-stop shop for all. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to take my operational experience and bring that into uh, the private sector. And, and that goes for the, the way we compartmentalize the way we travel. And I think that goes back to our time as snipers, you know, living in small confined spaces. Um, I'm better with less. The efficiency know. of it, right? Exactly. Everything makes sense. Everything has a place. So I think that's what truly is going to set, uh, these structures uh, apart from anything that they can either do themselves or purchase on the market. There aren't a whole lot of options at this point. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to be um, for su- built for sustainment um, and sustaining groups. Above ground, underground, or both? Uh, right now we're looking, we're, we're going to begin above ground, uh, but we want to branch off into uh, subterranean structures and bunker systems. 
Um, and I don't want to use bunker. Uh, it sounds militant. Um, but yet at the same time, I think, you know, we can agree, you know, everywhere we've been in the world is on fire and it's unrealistic for anyone to think that there won't be a place or time where it's like that in our own country. Um, and you know, that's not only as a green beret, but as a father and a husband and my obligation to the community around me. No, that makes sense for, for, for everybody out there. I know for me, the reason I've been successful with Philcraft is because of the network that, you know, with help of Global Recon, two from Running Tactics, and kind of our little network presence with Lauren, you know, Lauren from uh, Lauren out of Seal, Primo from Courses of Action, um, you know, Travis from Coach Whiskers, two from Running Tactics. If I didn't mention him, um, all these, all these guys, you know, Chris from uh, Addicted to the Gear, have come together and helped us generate our businesses and uh, basically our business models. I know John consults and helps me a lot with uh, marketing because that's his uh, expertise. So if there's anybody out there, you know, tra- or uh, Kevin's j- just released his uh, Instagram. It's at soft or soft runner, S O F runner. If there's anybody out there in that work in that space that, that can help Kev with internet marketing. I know, I know tips, I got from guys who just DM'd me were really imperative in, in shaping my business when, when I started out. So if there's anybody in that space, even in the shelter space, that potentially wants to network with Kevin, feel free to DM him at Soft, Soft Runner. I'm transitioning. I know me and you just wrapped up a project where we Philcraft presents and we're doing the Selected series, which is a three-volume series, DVD series, where they're about 90 minutes per volume and we focus on a specific uh, you know, philosophy in the first one, it's mindset and then focus on a couple hard skills per episode. And we're doing a three volume series with the first release being 30 May, which is Memorial Day with uh, pre-orders available right now on philcraftsurvival.com. And we did this with the intention of kind of filling a gap of information that didn't, doesn't exist. Right. Um, I know me and Kevin were joking about it uh, the other day, but we were talking about when we were growing up in the military, clothing and cells and the post exchange had, you know, a couple books and, you know, Ranger Joe's and General Jackson's, all these places have these um, cool books and cool equipment that you can get to make yourself a better potential candidate for special forces. But there was nothing in the realm of uh, really a start point for guys to get into special forces. Uh, I know this first episode, you know, a big concentration of our effort is in mindset, but we also talk rucksacks and foot care in the first volume how important are hard skills um when you look in and tying them in with mindset how important are hard skills in the selection process uh, and we we've, we've gone back and forth on on talking about different hard skills but how were how, how important were they for you when you went through selection as a as an operator well you know again going back to the hard skills it's going to be based on the exposure of the individual and for me, um, you know, I was a young guy going through uh, the Special Forces Assessment and Selection Program. So I, I had a couple field problems under my belt, but I wasn't this salty NCO that has, has dealt with, you know, every problem out there in the military and has lived half of his career in the, the on field training exercises. So my boots weren't broken in. Um, you know, I had a ruck on my back. You know, I could pack a ruck and stuff like that. Uh, but yet at the same time, there was a lot of the physicalities I was in no way prepared for. 
So for me, it was all mindset. I, I remember reaching a point of acceptance and, and feeling that, that first flip of the, the uh, proverbial switch, going into autopilot, finding a happy spot in the back of my head and, and just enduring. Again, enjoying the suck, embracing the suck. Um, and, and there's techniques that, that you know, we, we go over it as far as, you know, visualization techniques, um, mantras, you know, uh, you got to get creative with it. You have to find somewhere else to, to truly endure and get through it. Once you get through it, then it just builds the confidence and it becomes easier and easier. Um, but, you know, again, it's I think we cover some key aspects of of the design of the program, you know, um, which will help individuals uh, better mentally prepare and and also physically prepare. You still have to be able to complete the course. You just can't show up and, and Jedi mind fuck your way through it. But I'm um, sorry. Yeah, I know. No, it's that's it's funny because, you know, we talked about this program. And we wanted to do a program we call, in the military called G2. So it's, you know, it stands for intelligence. But when you're looking for G2, trying to get intel on the latest and greatest, especially when it comes to selection, there, there's basic skill sets. We don't expose trade secrets of how to be a special forces candidate or a selectee because there, it doesn't exist because there is no special skills required. But there's general what we call common core task skills, but they're just not taught and talked about. And Applying those hard skills like how to carry a ruck, how to pack it, how to do a pace count, how to do land navigation, how to take care of your feet, just basic hard skills, and apply it to the lessons learned and methodology that we have uh, learned as being SF guys uh, is the tie-in. Because, look, I don't like to talk about philosophy without giving tangible outputs where people can take away an acronym or a school of thought or a practice that they could actually apply uh, during the selection process or in life in general. So what's great about this project is I think Kevin's ability where we took that mindset and turned it into practices and turned it into specific things that you could do to get through and endure. If you lack the experience, which I know both of us did when, when we went through selection. So it's kind of like getting the tools for the, you know, your kit bag and some of the things that, that you get, you know, they're not going to be useful. If anything, they might slightly increase your abilities, but filling that space of void of no information, which is what I had. I know when I went through selection, like I didn't know what I was doing and I showed up there and they got, thank goodness I had the grit, you know, to let, to make up for my hard skills. Mm-hmm. But we kind of go into both of those, those things throughout the series. Yeah, um, well, it, you know, and I think it's worth stating that, Granted, our pedigrees, both Special Forces Green Berets, speaking of specifically Special Forces Assessment and Selection, I think it applies to all of the, the entire Special Operations community. I think any challenge that's out there, any type of physical assessment, um, what we are bringing uh, to the people is is a huge asset. And it applies, I mean, again, it, it's the applications are limitless. Yeah, the SEALs do it in the water, right? And we do it on land through, you know, through the woods. Exactly. But yet we still have... Scuba teams. Yeah. So. Another, yeah. another class or another uh, podcast. Yeah. So. Um, okay. So wrapping up, man, you, you, uh, you're about to retire soon. Uh, you're actually on terminal leave right now, right? Yeah. So terminal leave, he's basically signed out of the military, but he's just waiting to officially, uh, have yeah. it, have it over. <laughs> um, let's, let's wrap it up with, uh, 
Is there any regrets in the military, like big picture strategic regrets in your career that you, you wish you would have did? No, not at all. Um, everything worked out in the end. Um, and I think, you know, it's going to sound like a cliche and somewhat cheesy, but you truly do just have to, to believe in yourself. Um, you know, the second you allow doubt to, to take over your, your goals fall to shit. Um, you get off course and you're, you're kind of missing out on a lot of great things and a lot of great opportunities. You know, I challenged myself, um, with everything that I was interested in accomplishing and, uh, with what I wasn't successful for in the end, it worked out, um, to be for the better. Um, and to where even I can go back to the helicopter crash and see where that was a benefit for me as a soldier and as a husband and as a father. Um, so again, it, it's, it's always been my mindset to persevere. Okay. What, what, let's talk about greatest memory, greatest memory in your military career, 22 years. Oh, shit. So many. Jeez. I, uh, no, um, wow. Wow. I don't even know. I can remember now. I don't even know what is my greatest memory. Being in gunfight with Stanley Crystal. <laughs> That's uh, Rolling Stone episode twenty-seven. Yeah, no, but um, no, I was just every day was a was a dream. You know, it was uh, it was a rock star lifestyle. Uh, the best thing that a average state athlete could wish for. Uh, again, being realistic, that I was never going to be a pro baller of any sorts. Um, I grew up in a locker room. I retired out of a fucking locker room, you know, with a team. And it's not like some of the, the, the military units out there. I mean, I know their wives, their children. Um, we stay in touch, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's a genuine obligation of concern um, that I wouldn't have experienced anywhere. Um, and again, just the exposure I had to the different people, the training, it, it's, it's hard to single it down to one key moment um i've been extremely fortunate um, you're alive you're good you yes. no, no injuries i mean I'm, I'm i'm rough around the edges but i cleaned up nice yeah you cleaned up very well yeah well i heard soft runner is like the best looking guy on itunes i'm just so, supposedly I, he, I, he's I, handsome he's a handsome man he's old but kind of like a sam elliott you know yeah his face is blurred out on all his instagram <laughs> posts for a reason um now it's Kevin, it's good to have you on, man. You. We'll have you on again, uh, most definitely. And we appreciate your service and everything that you've done for this country, man. It's been 22 long, great years. But, um, you know, welcome to the club and thanks for your service. Thanks, man. It's always interesting to hear from a guy with uh, Kevin's experience. Uh, as he served a very long time and he has an interesting take on survival and mindset. And uh, we'll definitely have Kevin back on for future episodes. So with that, we're going to close it out. Uh, my website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. I have two Instagram accounts. The first one is IG Recon, and the second is Global Recon underscore Inc. And my Twitter is IG Recon. Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Facebook is Fieldcraft LLC. He also has two Instagram accounts. The first one is Self Survivor. The second one is Fieldcraft Survival. Um, Kevin is on Instagram right now. Uh, his Instagram handle is Soft Runner. That's S O F Runner. And you can expect to see more and hear more from Kevin in the future. 
So with that, uh, I'll close it out and we'll see you guys in a few days with another episode. Peace.